And once again, that jarring cacophony tells you it's time for another episode of the Power of Three podcast. This is the episode that's going to throw our numbering system out for the rest of the season because it's kind of thrown out the numbering system for Doctors and Regenerations as well. We are talking the War Doctor. We are talking about his only appearance in print so far in Engines of War by George Mann. I'm Kenny Smith and I'm joined by my pal from yesterday making his second Power of Three co-conspiratorial hosting appearance. You better say hello. Hello, I'm the War Matt Michael. <laughs> How does it feel to be replacing Dave Steele? And it's quite nice for me to actually be chatting with somebody with hair. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an honour, what can I say? Yeah, and it's on your head as well. So, uh, Unlike Dave, it's on his face. So. <laughs> dear, dear. Anyway, welcome back. As I back. get older, it's in my nose more than anything. Oh, it's when it starts coming out your ears in tufts. That's oh, when you're no. in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when you look like um, the Reverend Ernest Matthews, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> That's my ambition in life, to get to an age where I'm happy to look like Ernest Matthews. Yeah, just as long as the monkey in a, a glass case. I, uh, to I was about to point out, and I'm, I'm sure you'd love living uh, as a Victorian gentleman and uh, starch suits and walking around being pious and looking down your nose hairs at everyone. So, yeah, I'm sure that'd be great fun. I'd do that anyway, to be honest, Kevin. <laughs> well, we're talking Engines of War today, the one and only War Doctor release now. Oh, and you've got your hardback copy there in your hands. It is a lovely book. But I remember when this was first announced, I was really surprised because I just thought the War Doctor, we'd only get to see him in Day of the Doctor and that would be it. They wouldn't be able to go back and touch him. They'd just keep him to give him some mistakes. So were you surprised when it was announced? Um, yeah, I... They, mildly surprised. I was more surprised when... Big Finish announced that John Hurt was going to do audios, um, but yeah, I think I think it was it was surprising, but I think it was at a point in time where they were they were releasing um, BBC books were releasing a number of kind of high profile sort of big glossy hardbacks. They did uh, the Michael Moorcock one, didn't they? They did Terrafiles, yeah. Files. They did the the Wheel of Ice. The, there's a Jenny Colgan one, I think. Yeah, Dark um, Horizons. Yeah, they they did they did a few um, that didn't quite fit in the sort of standard, the standard sort of tie-in range that they've been doing since Eccleston's time. So it, it kind of surprised me, but it also kind of didn't because it's the kind of thing that that you would do for a, a sort of glossy one-off, I guess. Yeah, and I think the phrase I would have to use to describe it when I learned of it would be surprised and delighted. Mm. You've been thank persuaded to stay. I have been persuaded to stay for the rest of this podcast. Yes, thank you, Matt. I was about to go stay there. Stay tuned, but... everyone. <laughs> oh, you're just looking for the doable barkers, aren't you? <laughs> Moving swiftly on, it's... But before we actually chat about the book, why don't we have the back cover blurb? Although it's not going to be read by either of us, Matt, because wouldn't oh. it be lovely if we could hear it in the voice of the War Doctor himself? Oh, it would. The death of millions is as nothing to us if it helps defeat the Daleks. The Great Time War has raged for centuries, ravaging the universe. Scores of human colony planets are now overrun by Dalek occupation forces. A weary, angry doctor leads a flotilla of battle TARDISes against the Dalek stronghold. But in the midst of the carnage, the doctor's TARDIS crashes to a planet below. Moldox. As the doctor is trapped in an apocalyptic landscape, Dalek patrols roam amongst the wreckage, rounding up the remaining civilians. But why haven't the Daleks simply killed the humans? Searching for answers, the Doctor meets Cinder, a young Dalek hunter. Their struggles to discover the Dalek plan take them from the ruins of Maldox to the halls of Gallifrey, and set in motion a chain of events that will change everything. And everyone. 
an epic novel of the Great Time War, featuring the War Doctor, as played by Sir John Hurt, and some fellow named Jonathan Carney. Never heard of him. Thank you to Jonathan Carley, who's, of course, the voice of the War Doctor for Big Finish, for reading that for us. Uh, lovely fella, and he'll be coming up for a full chat in the very near future on a future episode of The Power of Three. So there we go. He's a lovely fella, great voice, and um, had a great time hanging out with him at the recent convention in Derby up in Hooverville. So there we go. Anyway, let's discuss this one. What I really, really enjoyed about this is the fact that we've got the three-act structure in here coming into play. Mm. And I think that what George Mann does in this, particularly with the character of the Doctor, like we'll, we'll call him the Doctor for the convenience of the rest of this podcast, because we don't want to call him the gentleman with the beard, the man who is not the Doctor. It will just take forever. What he has done, extrapolating so much from... We're not given a huge amount to get to know this character when we do see him on TV. And I think what he manages to do is nothing short of phenomenal. It's like what Big Finish managed to do with the Eighth Doctor, using even less screen time. Yeah. And I think it's it's incredible what a bit of smart thinking, just people who are passionate about these things can actually do to create a character where generally there's not been a huge amount to work with. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, I, I think it, the the War Doctor at the time, I think. Because this was published in 2014, right? So he he only been in, in the special the year before, and as you said, he really was an unknown quantity apart from, you know, it was what a 75 minute special, and he was probably therefore only on screen for about 20 25 minutes of it, so significantly less than began in the TV movie, um, and he was having to share the screen with Matt Smith and, and David Tennant, obviously as well. So you're right, extrapolating. A huge amount. I think John Hurt's performance and just, I mean, Sir John Hurt has such a, a stature and a gravitas to him that I think just leaning into that takes you some of the way there. But I do, I do enjoy how the kind of weariness and the sort of bitterness of the War Doctor kind of comes through. I think he's not he's not that bad in inverted commas in the book. He doesn't do anything truly horrific, but then the war doctor actually didn't doesn't really do anything truly horrific in the day of the doctor. It's all you know it's implied that maybe he's got involved in war crimes in the past, but there's nothing there's nothing here that would constitute I think a war crime. I think he does lose his temper and strangle someone at one point, which is a bit further than most of the doctors. Not all of them, but most of them don't go around strangling people, with one notable exception. Um, <laughs> he's not a horrible, unlikable character, and I think that's interesting because it would have been easy to just have him walking around like Rambo, just shooting people and punching Chancellor Flavory in the face and things like that. <laughs> It's <laughs> nothing like that. What you say there is what a lot of people were actually expecting, not only in this book, but also when the big Finnish War Doctor audios did come around. And actually, just what I remembered, the first time I heard about them was I was out for lunch with Nick when I was down in London in June. In fact, it was June the 18th or June the 17th, 2015, two days for my birthday or one day for my birthday. And he told me that, they were, that John had agreed to do some. And I was all excited. So I was like, woo. Uh, anyway, that's a by the by. But yeah, I think so many people were expecting, as you say, like a Rambo type doctor who'd be going around mm. shooting left, right, and centre. And But what we get here is very much also, I'd imagine, what Matt Fitton, who I know reads every Doctor Who book and such like that, is very multimedia literate. Um, and Nick would no doubt have gone through as well to say, no, he is at core, he is the same man, but he will just perhaps wear as we do get in the War Doctor audios, where he does push the button to kill a bunch of people who are travelling towards the centre of the planet or whatever to, mm. to blow it up to stop the Dalek explosion or Dalek plans, and he will go that step further. But it's only as a last resort. It's not because he's like, yeehaw, let's go out and kill them all. Woohoo! It's very much, this is what he has to do, not because he wants to, but because he has to. 
Yeah, I, I and I, I think that's that's spot on, I, and I think that's the whole point, really, of of the Doctor is that he isn't the monster that later Doctors have built him up as in their own mind. He's the same man. It's just, I think, as they say in in the TV episode, he was the Doctor on the day that it wasn't possible to to be the Doctor, yeah. and he did what he had to do at, at that moment in time. Very much so. I mean, I think what we get here right at the start, you can tell there is a slight difference here because you get, I mean, the sequence I can, I, mean, I can still sort of picture it in my mind's eye and um, discuss this soon with George. Just the whole sequence where the Doctor uses the TARDIS to smash through Dalek spaceships and just think, brilliant imagery. Just think yeah. you could imagine that being CGI'd, seeing it on screen. Yeah. And I'm amazed that there's never been a fan video of somebody actually realising that and and doing it because it's just so it's so visual and I remember reading it twice because I enjoyed it so much it's just that wonderful you'd never seen the TARDIS used in that way at all and the fact no. that you're just going through it and actually physically going out and taking the Daleks on head to head and just smashing them to smithereens and I love that and that really sort of sets the, this book apart from the word go yeah it picks up on that brief sequence doesn't it at the start of or not at the start, but near the start of the Day of the Doctor in, is it Arcadia? It's during the fall of Arcadia when the Doctor takes on a few Daleks and rescues the the Time Lord family from a Dalek squad and it just extrapolates from there into this like really Baroque action sequence. It's, it's fantastic. But I like how much it picks up from the Day of the Doctor. I also quite like how much it picks up from the Night of the Doctor, actually, particularly in the Doctor's relationship with his kind of companion for the book, um, Cinder, who is very much like Cass in my mind. I, I, I kind of picture them as being very similar characters, right? And, and I think George pulls on Cass's reaction to the Eighth Doctor and the TARDIS for Cinder's reaction to initial reaction to the War Doctor and, and the TARDIS in Engines of War. I think there's there's a real and a deliberate echo as well because I think the Doctor sort of brushes it off as like, I've seen this kind of reaction before as a deliberate callback but yeah so it's really good how it builds on these small nuggets of information that we've had in the anniversary specials and weaves them into a, a really compelling story Something else George introduces us to are some incredibly brilliant new variations of Daleks we get different sorts and the fact that we get the Eternity Circle as well, which just, that absolutely fits in with everything that, that Russell created, the Eternity Circle. It means, you think about it, what does that actually mean? But just the name of it is great. It's like the Nightmare Child, that sort of yeah. thing. The Scarrow Degradations. Completely, yeah. yeah. And we get to meet them, of course, in yes. this book. And they're like some of the rejected concepts for, for the McGann TV series, which yes. is... is um, it actually, actually, talking about how it extrapolates stuff, it does pull on the end of time, which I think is where things like the, the Horde of Travesties and the Scarry Degradations are, are first mentioned, because Rassilon appears in the middle section of the book on Gallifrey. And I know there's a sort of big Five Doctors callbacks, the scenes in the Death Zone, but, but the idea of Rassilon as the reborn president of the Time Lords brought back from his sort of slumber to lead the Time Lords in their hour of need, like some kind of Gallifreyan King Arthur is, is amazing. And Rassilon is awful. He's a sort of tyrant and totally, totally amoral, just as he is in the end of time. He's willing to write off the rest of the universe as long as Gallifrey survives. And again, I think that's all, all, all the evidence is there in, in the end of time. And George has just pulled on that to, to weave it into a, a bigger story. Yeah, very much rattle on the despot. Just that absolutely his will is all that matters. And what he says goes. Now, you mentioned there throwbacks to the five doctors. The thing that I like is we get the throwback to that scene from Genesis when with the do I have the right... And in this case, he absolutely goes through and those Khaled mutants are well, green paste before you know it. And there's and again, that's something that I think is a nice contrast with something that we're familiar with 
but here he actually yeah. goes through with it and we get to see what happens and I really enjoyed that I think it was a very smart thing to do no I, I agree and I think although I, I also think it's easy to forget in Genesis of the Daleks the Doctor ultimately decides he does have that right and he is going back to blow up the Daleks but they <laughs> get sidetracked so but I, I, I love the sort of references back to Genesis being the start of the Time War which again kind of ties into I think some words that Russell wrote for was it one of the storybooks in about 2005 it's like that's the one opening gambit of the time war was the time was trying to avert the Daleks creation it all escalated from all escalated from there yeah I, I the bits in the death zone because I'm a massive five doctors fan mm-hmm. um, are just in my sweet spot and I think Barusa's fate if you thought if you thought the end of the five doctors was horrific then you ain't seen nothing yeah, because it's got a lot, lot worse for ex-president Barusa. Go on, share it. We can, we can we'll put, here we go. Spoilers. If you don't want to know, spin forward by one minute. Go on, Matt. Share it. He's been transformed into the sort of possibility engine, so transformed into a kind of Rassilon's sort of soothsayer to predict the the outcomes of various gambits that Rassilon comes up with, and I picture it very much like, you know, one of the. If you've read Chris Bidmead's novelization of Frontios and the horrible kind of half human, half machine things there, I'm picturing something very, very similar. Like Barusa's wired in and being sapped of all of his life to power Rassilon's ambitions. And I think those sequences are great because they really land just how single minded and determined Rassilon is regardless of what it means for every other being in the cosmos he will literally well as we know in the end of time he will literally wipe out creation if it means that he gets to live forever so not not entirely surprising or out of keeping but to see it done in such a vivid way is 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 quite powerful and I think quite necessary because this book is supposed to be the moment that the Doctor realises that the Time Lords are sort of are, are lost, essentially, that they've become as bad and as dangerous a threat to the universe as the, the Daleks. And really, the one way or another, both the Time Lords and the Daleks have to have to be stopped to save, to save the rest of the universe. You mentioned there what Rassilon does to Bruce and of course what the Daleks want to do to create the Predator Dalek by capturing the Doctor and making him into the ultimate Dalek weapon there is something so utterly logical about that you take your opponent's greatest warrior and transform him because I mean it reminds me this reminds me a bit of an episode of the old Japanese puppet series Starfleet where there's um, where Commander Makara leads the, the aliens and um they capture people and they convert. They're sort of, not quite like the Borg. They sort of put implants on them and they sort of brainwash them to to go over to their side. And that's what that was my first thought reading this. And then it was only like later I thought, oh yeah, Borg as well. But yeah, I think it is such a it's a horrible idea having this bigger casing and the Predator is just such a great name as well. Yeah. They're creating a half Dalek, half Time Lord um, a hybrid creature, hybrid. There's an idea. I should put that in the show sometime. <laughs> Just to explain what it actually is. Yes, that'd be good. It could be any number of things, like Sherlock's escape from the Reichenbach Fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think, and I think that is a deliberate echo of Barusa's fate as well. I, the, the whole book is is built around neither the Time Lords nor the Daleks are, are really at this point in the war preferable to one another. Even if the Time Lords win at this point I don't think the universe with the Time Lords in charge looks a much happier place than a universe with the Daleks in charge to be honest. I think Rassilon's Gallifrey is not going to stop with the Daleks at this point I don't think. No, definitely not. And of course, you mentioned earlier on Cinder, poor lovely Cinder, who is absolutely perfect companion material. Mm. 
and before long it's ashes to ashes, cinder to cinders. <laughs> it is. And yeah, it, and we never, I don't think we ever learn her real name, do we? No. Nope. The doctor writes, the doctor doesn't put us on a tombstone, but we we never do. I like to think it's a Clara Splinter. No, I don't. Ah. With red hair. Yeah, Clara Osbinosal. Or maybe it's a Donna Noble Splinter, who knows? But she's a, a good foil for the doctor and a good a good kind of temporary companion and I think I think kind of plays an important role in the in the book because again if this were just the doctor the war doctor fighting Daleks and time lords the risk is it becomes a bit detached from what's at stake for anyone else because if it's just a fight between you know one one lot of awful fascists and another lot of awful fascists there's not much at stake whereas um, Cinder has to be the voice of like everyone else in the universe who's suffering because of because of this conflict and I think reminding the Doctor of why why he's fighting is not really for Rassilon's vision of Gallifrey he's fighting for all of the Cinders of the universe and um, I think that connection to the Doctor's mission rather than Rassilon's mission is what drives the kind of moral centre of the book very much so and the fact that ultimately it's Cinder's passing that leads to him writing no more and kicking in a nice little link into what we get yeah. in the movie but um, yeah there's you get the feeling that the Doctor has no wish to be floating around like Cinder's in Spain <laughs> no jokes for high level Doctor Who fans here today I'm very sorry. But any other moments stand out or any particular characters make an impression on you? Um, I, I know there's sort of the, the, the sort of Time Lord characters that are sent after the Doctor. To, to be honest, I think the Doctor, uh, Cinder, keep almost calling it a cast, the Doctor, Cinder, Rassilon and the Daleks, that's what the book's really about and everyone else is just in their orbit so that they were the ones that really sort of stick in my mind and Bruce's horrible fate because you know it was already yeah. horrible enough to be used to a bit of stone on the side of Rascalon's tomb yeah or just a piece of plastic in action figure form coming soon although it's actually just the old time lord fella from the previous uh, issue of figures but yeah I think it's it's a great book and in some ways I wish there were more featuring the War Doctor, but at the same time, I'm, <laughs> what we're saying about high-level great jokes for Doctor Who fans, that, my friend, is genius. <laughs> I think because this is a one-off and it's there on its own, that makes it stand out all the more and makes it more memorable. And it gives us something that, I mean, at the time, it was our only new War Doctor story for a few years. But also, I think it does help pave the way for what Big Finish were to do as well. Mm. and set the tone for their sort of War Doctor range. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think I think you kind of see in in the Big Finish War Doctor stories that, again, the expectation might be, for some people might be, oh, it should be the Doctor being evil and doing awful things like the David Collins Unbound Doctor. But it's 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 never quite like that. I think he is much... He will go much further than the other incarnations of the Doctor, but I don't think he—I don't think he's sort of a rampaging, amoral killer. Homicidal maniac, because I think, is what you're looking he's for. The same, yeah. He's, he's, he's the same. He's the same person all the way through his existence, with just different aspects brought forward or backwards. Not not a radically different character every single time he changes. Very much so. Oh, great. Well, I enjoyed it and really enjoyed rereading it. And obviously, I do love the cover, particularly when there's that new special weapon Dalek. I'm assuming that's a temporal weapon Dalek, but it just looks wonderful to stare in the, the left hand or over the Doctor's right hand shoulder. Yeah, it's a, it is a gorgeous cover. You know, the, the taglines are... The, tag, the taglines kind of sell the idea that maybe this is a bad doctor war changes everyone even the doctor it says on the front cover and then the back cover has 
that quote from the day of the doctor about i've had many faces many lives i don't admit to all of them there's one life i've tried very hard to forget so that kind of sets the the tone before you even open the book and read read what's inside and maybe therefore the book slightly confounds your your expectations in a good way very fair comment fantastic thank you for that matt well we've given our thoughts on it i think we should hear how it all came to be from the man who actually put finger to word processor but you're going to hear it was a very interesting way in which george wrote this book and how it all came around so let's hand over to the author Hello, I'm George Mann, and I'm the author of Doctor Who Engines of War. Was this a bit of a surprise commission, George? Because I know that I was absolutely shocked when it was announced, because I thought that would be it. War Doctor, we've seen him on the telly. That's it. Done. Move on. Yeah, it was. It was. It com- came completely out of the blue. And um, I mean, it was lovely. I got a, um, I think it was an email from Justin Richards, who was commissioning the books at the time. And I'd done some work for him before done um paradox lost and i'd I'd written um several audios doctor audios and and comics and um i think my background kind of having also written for warhammer and stuff that um, him and albert knew that i i I wrote action fairly well um and, and and war stuff but the email that came from justin wasn't it wasn't kind of it wasn't explicit about what the project was it says how are you fixed at the moment for work okay well, you know, I'm always open for a chat, Justin. And then it came back again. It was like, well, we've got a project. It's a very quick turnaround. This was February. And he said, um, it needs to be finished kind of mid-April. So it's like, ooh, it's a novel. It's like, okay. So we were looking about eight weeks at that point. Can you do it? And I came out and said, well, what is it? And he said, well, I'll tell you if you can do it. <laughs> I was like, okay. So um, I went and had a chat to my wife because I was working full-time at this point as well. And I said... What do you think? You know, Justin's offering me this this book. I don't know what it is. I know it's Doctor Who, but I don't know what it is. It's, it must be something because he's not. It's not part of. It doesn't sound like it's the regular round of kind of commissioning three books at a time. You know, situation. So it must be something special. But it's a quick turnaround. And and Fiona said, "You've got to do it. Of course, you've got to do it. You know, we'll 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 make it work. I'll, you know, I'll make sure the kids are taken care of." You can take a week off work or two weeks off work if you need. You know, let's. You've got to do it. And and you know, Fiona's always been hugely supportive of my work, which is brilliant. So I went back to Justin and said, "Yeah, I'm up for it. What is it?" And he came back and said, "War Doctor, Daleks, Time War." And I nearly fell off my seat. I was like, "Oh, thank goodness that I said yes," because I kind of, I kind of then started imagining the scenario where I'd said no and found out someone else got to write that book. You know, so yeah, I mean, so th- from that point, it was a mad scramble. So I had basically two weeks to write an outline, get it approved, and six weeks to write the book while still working full time. So it was frenetic. The whole the whole process was frenetic. <laughs> My approach to it was kind of, what if this is the only Doctor Who book you ever get to write? You know, and and I kind of knew it wasn't. It wasn't because I was also working on other short stories and audio pitches and things. But it was, I kind of wanted it to feel special. Like like the the episode had, had felt special, you know. It was, this was all part of the the BBC's kind of anniversary. Although it was coming out in the, I think it was late July, came out, but in 2014, in their eyes, it was kind of wrapped up as part of their celebration of the the anniversary, the 50th anniversary. So I thought, well, I need to treat this like it was a movie. I'm writing a Doctor Who movie, and it's you know it's going to have loads of action in it because it's the Time War. But it also I wanted it to feel like it had one one foot in the classic series and one foot in the modern era of Doctor Who because that's kind of how I saw John Hurt and the, and the Time War it's like, it's like bridging that gap between the two halves of the show so I just thought caution to the wind I'm just gonna write an outline full of crazy stuff you know full of all the things I think they're not gonna let me do but I've got to try and then they'll say turn it back a bit you know do this and do that and and I thought you know usual process but I thought I'm, I'm going to go all out so I, I, I did and I was like for me one of the most special episodes of Doctor Ever was The Five Doctors so I was like oh, we're going to revisit The Death Zone got to get that in there got to have Gallifrey and Rasslon in it obviously I want to create some new types of Daleks I want a new companion um, so I just kind of made this shopping list of all the cool things I wanted to put in the book and then wrote this outline 
I sent it in to Justin and kind of went, <laughs> what are they going to say? What are they going to say? Fully, and, and I say, fully expecting it to come back covered in red pen saying, you can't do this. Maybe, you know, you can't use the death zone and you can't. And I just came out and said, yeah, get on with it. Great. And again, I nearly fell from a chair. It's like, wow, okay. They're letting me have the keys to the kingdom. So I, I went for it. And, and I think, I think it shows in the book the freedom that I had. And I think that it benefits from being part of the time war so there's kind of plausible deniability canon wise i mean doctor who doesn't ha- doesn't have a canon everything is canon in doctor who because time can be rewritten and I, that's one of the beauties of, of the, the format of doctor who but i kind of thought you know they've got that plausible deniability if they ever want to say well that, that happened in one version of the time war or time war or one strand of what was happening in the time war but then the daleks did something and it all changed again that's the beauty of a time war so i, I suppose that's part of the reason they let me get away with stuff but yeah, it was it was kind of a white hot period of creativity, really. Yeah, good. I mean, it's to me, it's it's just such. I mean, I think when I started reading this, I just was so gripped and hooked in. I mean, to me, the opening chapter is like a Bond film. It's like your pre-credit sequence, and it's just <laughs> had that kind of energy to it. It's sort of like you're building up and sort of reintroducing the character. We're getting some action, and the fact that you're getting the TARDIS used as a weapon. Which is completely yeah, different. Alex also. Yeah, which is to me. I mean, I remember reading that chapter twice because it was just so visual, <laughs> and I could see it in my mind's eye. And went back to it, and it's still exactly the same way. Um, and it's. Brilliant. I mean, I suppose that's the sort of thing you're trying to capture that that yeah. something that's that Bond film energy and excitement and just cinematic feel. Exactly, cinematic's the exact word for it. That's that's exactly what I was going for. Is like, how can I make this feel like widescreen Doctor Who? but still feeling like it was rooted in Doctor Who and the classic show and, and also picking up on those elements of the, the modern show. So, so yeah, I mean, I think... And, and also, you know, it's the War Doctor. We want to see him doing things that other Doctors wouldn't do. We want him to still feel like the Doctor at heart, I think. But he's obviously, you know, when we join him in, at the start of the book and, and like we did in the, in, when we see him in the show as well, he isn't thinking of himself as the Doctor. And that was that was a big debate we had initially, which is, well, what do we call him in the book? Is he is he the Doctor? And you know, when we're writing third person POV, is he the Doctor? The Doctor stepped into the the room. Is it you know, is it the Doctor or is it the War Doctor or is it something else? And we decided early on, no, he's still the Doctor as far as the third person narration goes, and he's still the Doctor. I mean, this, I kind of pushed that a little bit. So that Russellon still calls him the Doctor, and you know, the Time Lord still calls him the Doctor, because partly they're doing it to needle him, but partly it's recognition of the fact that he's still the Doctor, and he's the only one who's not recognising that. But it's his way of understanding and, and justifying the actions he's having to do. So it's like, well, we have to have some of that on screen. We have to, you know, see him destroying a Dalek fleet and, you know, going all out against against the enemy because, you know, he's he's... He doesn't want to be fighting, but he knows it's the only thing, the only way to to protect the, the universe. Yeah, because the thing that I remember sort of a lot of people were expecting to be some sort of gun-toting Schwarzenegger, you know, sort of 80s action hero type version of the Doctor, which was never what, how I envisaged it. I was, I'd like to say, he's still recognisable with the character we have, but he does things when it's, it's a last resort. He doesn't want to do it, but unlike other Doctors, he will do it. But again, it's the last resort. Exactly that. He's, he is a doctor of last resort. He's, he's under intense pressure. And I kind of like, because it was a prequel to the, the, the TV story, I was kind of looking at, well, what's, what is it that's going to drive him to that ultimate decision to go and use the moment? What pushes him to the edge that far, you know? And that's where the, that's where the companion was born, you know, Cinder, because I was like, he's not been traveling with a companion. He's been fighting a war. He's been leading a time, time lord fleets. But something had to, to push him to, to the edge even further than than he'd already he, he already was and I kind of thought he finds a human bond again someone who reminds him he is the doctor and, and it's almost like and then she dies and it's like I have to stop this I have to stop this happening again and also that you know the, the way that the I, I kind of wanted to portray the time lords as like they're, they're going too far they're starting to become the Daleks so, you know the war is driving them to increasingly terrible acts in the name of defense and that's that's the other thing that causes the doctor to step back and go i can't be a part of this stopping the daleks is one thing wiping out billions of lives in the process is anathema to everything we should stand for 
that's that was the other kind of thing where I was trying to get under his skin and the motivation for what who he who he is at that point and what he's doing is he's trying to save his own people from from doing something they can never walk back from. Yeah, once again, he's the moral compass when they've lost theirs. Exactly, exactly that. So, so yeah, so that's why I kind of felt he's still the doctor in this. He's, you know, he's, he's a doctor that's um, that's suffering in a way that you know we haven't seen before. Yeah, which I think again adds more depth to the character, and again leads up to what we see on screen in the day of the doctor. Now, you mentioned there just at the start about creating new dialects. That must have been so much fun for you to do, and particularly picking up in phrase like the scarrow degradations. Yeah, well, no, that's it. So again, I was like. So these things have been tossed out by Russell as part of the world building of the Time War and, and what had gone on. I was like, we've got to we've got to explore that. What are the Scarrow degradations? You know, and again early on, I was thinking, well, you know, the, the Daleks rewriting their own history and biology to try and fine tune themselves into to different weapons, or trying to find threads of the timelines where the Daleks have evolved differently and and, and using them as um, fodder, or you know, to, to pack out their ranks. Um, so that's where I kind of like, well, these weird kind of Dalekish creatures are, are coming from, like experimental Daleks and Daleks that have evolved in, in different patterns, all being pulled into this central timeline to, to aid the war. And then the temporal weapon Dalek, though, you know, I was, I've always loved the special weapons Dalek. <laughs> so it's like, right, well, here's a, here's a chance to do something that's akin to that but you know uh, yeah exactly <laughs> I'm holding up the action yeah. figure for our YouTube viewers to... yeah exactly it's 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 one of the coolest Daleks so I was like well okay temporal weapons Daleks then let's do something cool with that you know because again you know that's that's it's a time war so they must be using time as a weapon as well as trying to write and rewrite in timelines you know time itself can become a weapon so that's that's what the Daleks are trying to do here they're I mean the whole kind of thing they're trying to do in the book is you've got this group of Daleks called the Eternity Circle who are kind of highly intelligent planning Daleks and they're trying to turn a spatial anomaly into uh, a weapon that can wipe Gallifrey from history from all permutations of all realities so just a small scale plan Um, (laughs) but again I thought it has to be ambitious you know, if, we, if we're gonna if we're gonna tell a story like this, if it's gonna have a, like a movie style plot and feel to it, if it's gonna feel like a celebration, it should have a plot to end all plots. You know, and, and, and again, Russell does that so well with some of his stories with with the Daleks. You know, planetary engineering and things like that. So it's like it felt like it was working within that sphere and, and, and trying to tap into the same kind of feel and, and tone. Yeah, definitely did. And the thing that. Also, I remember a wry smile on first read was the Doctor entering a room full of Calid mutants, and unlike Genesis, he feel he does put the wires together. And yeah. I think that that must have been something that would have been in your early thoughts, just to show. No, I am going to do it. Yes, I would do it. To borrow a phrase. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. This is. I mean, again, it's this is about showing that the War Doctor isn't the same Doctor. He is. I mean, he is. He is the Doctor, but he's. He's thinking about things differently. He's acting differently. He's, and it's the benefit of hindsight. He knows now what he could have stopped if he'd done it. And that doesn't mean it would have been right for the Fourth Doctor to touch the wires. You know, certainly, you know, it wouldn't have been right for for the character at that point. But at this point, he's spent endless years fighting Daleks constantly, constantly, constantly. It just seems like well, it's just another room full of Daleks to to destroy. So. Yeah, and it was it was absolutely purposely designed to echo that moment and to 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 show people, okay, this is the Doctor, but it's not quite the Doctor you, you're used to. Yeah, or to borrow a phrase, he's a Doctor, but perhaps not the one you're expecting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a book in three acts as well. So was that a deliberate structure as well, just to go for that? Your beginning, your clear middle, and the final end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. These days, I do a lot of screenwriting as well, and I, I've, I've kind of learned the save the cat structure and the, um, you know, the classic three act structure, you know, the setup and the, the debate, and, and then the central section of kind of fun and games, and then the big break into three, the uh, long dark night of the soul, and the big climax. And I think I wasn't 
necessarily thinking about it in those terms as I was planning the book, but I was definitely thinking about it in the kind of classic three-act structure. So, so yeah, that's that's why it's three parts. I mean, I guess if I was if I had my time again, I might have thought about doing it in four parts to mirror the old serials as well. But I don't know if that would have kind of changed the feel of it in terms of like wanting it to feel like a movie as opposed to you know a classic serial recreating an era like you know one, so much of what we do in when we, when we write Doctor Who is being true to the era of Doctor Who that we're writing to echoing what we've seen on the screen what we've heard in the audios what we've read in the other books and trying to capture a, a feel of an era for the reader here I wasn't doing that in the same way here I was trying to do something a bit new and different whilst again while still being true to you know it had to feel like Doctor Who but I kind of it was Doctor Who with without the stabilizers on, I suppose. <laughs> dimensional stabilizers, of course. Dimensional stabilizers, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I was pushing the boat out a bit, and and I think that's I think that's probably probably unconscious really at the time, but I, I think I was trying to mirror the structure of a movie. Of course, the biggie at the heart of this one is that the creation of the Predator Dalek, where the Daleks want to use the Doctor as yeah. pretty much the ultimate weapon. I mean, that is just a horrifying, chilly idea chilling idea I should say yeah I mean and it seems like to me like a, a um, an obvious Dalek plot we hadn't seen before you know that idea of make your greatest hero the greatest enemy because you know the Doctor's he's so smart and he's so kind of insightful that if you could channel that and turn it against the Time Laws what would it look like you know it would be the ultimate weapon it would be, it would be horrific if you could turn the Doctor you know and we've seen hints of that in the, things like the Veil Yard and, and, and stuff before but kind of that idea of you know we're going to take him and force him into a Dalek kind of shape into a you know um, Dalek housing and, and and reprogram his mind essentially to be a Dalek it's horrific I suppose it it taps a bit into what the Cybermen do I suppose and that, that idea of dehumanising um, people and, and I suppose Part of it was, I suppose, is, is an echo of what the what the Time Lords are doing by dehumanizing, dehumanizing. I can't speak now. <laughs> dehumanizing themselves. You know, it's meant to be. It's a it's a reflection of that. It's like the Daleks and the and the Time Lords are doing the same thing essentially to their to the Time Lords at this point. The Doctor is their greatest asset. He's you know um, he's leading them in the war. He's a bit of a wild card, but that's what works. But you know they're they're thinking of taking this kind of ultimate sanction and, and destroying whole star systems to stop the Daleks. So that means wiping out great swathes of, of people as well. And it's kind of what the, it's 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 mirror, like the dehumanizing of the Doctor into the Predator Dalek is is the mirror of that in the Daleks. So because what I really wanted to do was show you know it's only a paper thin wafer between the Daleks and the the Time Lords at this point. The Time Lords are one choice away from becoming everything that they they fear it comes across so well it's, it's just very much how corrupt and how they've fallen and there's still only one man in there and even then he's had to follow a fair bit as well to to try and yeah. retain himself but I, I love that part i mean something else i particularly enjoy is um as i as i see behind you uh, you have <laughs> your eighth doctor novels a very subtle oh, yeah. reference to sam jones yeah in, uh, yeah yeah black skinny jeans yeah, and the green t-shirts yeah and various other sort of subtle references just to, to other Doctors as well. I think there's references to Tom in there and I think John Pertwee as well. So yeah, there's these nice wee subtle touches to show it's still the same man, even if uh, yeah. he's not completely the same. No, exactly that. I um, I, mean, I was reading a lot of the Eighth Doctor books at the time, um, just for fun. And um, and there's some, and I, you know, I think Sam's quite a maligned character um, these days and I actually really quite like Sam. So yes, there's lots of references to, to Doctor Who's past and to different characters. You know, at one point he, he makes a joke with, to Cinder about, you know, with the TARDIS, you should try running away with one sometime. You know, he's talking like different, he's talking about his past life quite a lot. But the eighth Doctor, I just wanted it to feel like there was a bit of continuity between us. Because of course, at that point, we hadn't seen a lot of Time War stuff. We hadn't seen the big finish material. Uh, we hadn't seen the Magani era kind of stretch out into the Time War in the way that it has now in the kind of expanded media. So I wanted to feel like there was a bit of continuity between the eighth and moving into, you know, obviously the War Doctor. And yeah, I just felt that little throwback to an era that I was enjoying that, I, you know, was nice. And, and, and being in a book as well, referencing the books that came before, you know, everything we do in Doctor Who is built on the shoulders of giants. And I kind of, both in terms of the TV show, but also, in, you know, for me, Doctor Who books are a very special place in my heart because 
you know, as, I'm, as I know you did as well, we lived through the, uh, the fallow years where there was no TV show and Doctor Who was books. So it's nice to do some little callbacks to that, I think. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciated it as uh, Sam Jones has hopefully been getting a bit of a renaissance over in Pieces of Eighth as we go through all those EDAs one by one with the next batch yes, uh, due to come out very soon, going from the taint up to Ancestor Cell. So they will hopefully be out before Christmas. Plug, plug for the other podcast. Oh. <laughs> right. So did Engines of War ever have any working titles? That's something that always fascinates me, just in case it's ever known by something else. Yeah, the first, the working title was Council of War. I think the, the reason we didn't go with it was trying to think there might have been another story because um, I was referencing the the War Council, the you know, Gallifrey War Council, and I think there might have been another another Doctor Who story with a, with a similar title. And also, I think when you know Justin rightly pointed out, like Council doesn't sound like a movie, like a you know Council of War. It sounds like government and bureaucracy. Whereas you know we wanted something a bit more punchy, so I kind of went back and went, no, Engines of War that works. So that that became the title at that point. But yeah, for for most of the writing of it, it was Council Council of War. Yeah, I think engines it really does work because it just gives you that idea of like the Daleks as well being these yeah. ghastly, horrible machines. And ugh, yes, it yeah. definitely works for me. And of course, you get to revisit a few old favourites and the likes of Barusa, Resurrected, and we've yeah. got Rassilon as well. That must have been good fun for you as well, particularly getting a, another Five Doctors reference in there with the Death Zone. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, poor old Barusa. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit scary as well, actually. You know, tackling these big things, these big parts of Doctor Who's like you almost have to like the first the first time you know I'm sure you've experienced this the first time you write something official Doctor Who and you write the TARDIS on the, and you kind of stop and go oh I'm just I'm writing I'm writing proper Doctor Who and there was a, it was a bit like that as well with like writing Russell on and the Death Zone and you know you're, you're writing about these moments or these characters or these parts of this thing that you love and have loved since childhood and the last thing I wanted to do was cock it up for someone else, you know, so that I wanted people to be able to read this book and and enjoy those references back and not feel like I was misrepresenting them, but also pushing things forward a little bit and, and, and trying to do something new, you know, like the, the weird Time Lord things that are regenerating and constantly regenerating in the, um, in the Death Zone, kind of living in the caves and things, and I kind of wanted to introduce new elements, but still still feel true to you know the death zone it looks it looks like it did when you saw it on tv yeah and they could have filmed it because it's just up the road in wales so even better all right excellent <laughs> <laughs> of course we've just mentioned old favorites there in bruce and Rassilon. of course you mentioned cinder and uh yeah creating somebody who you knew was going to die from the word go that must have been fun yeah well i mean it's, it's hard because like tenants i didn't want to let her go at the end I really enjoyed, really enjoyed writing the, the the character, creating the character, and she's in some ways she's a mirror to where the War Doctor's at. She's she's a fighter. Everything's gone wrong in her family life. Her parents have been killed. She's um, lived under this uh, the oppression of the war with the Daleks on Moldox for years. But actually, she helps bring the Doctor back from the brink. She's you know she she reminds him that. You know, if the Doctor is the moral compass of the Time Lords, the Companion is often the moral compass of the Doctor, I think. And, and I think that's what I wanted to do here is, you know, she shows the Doctor what he has to do. And her death is, I say, I needed something. I needed needed to end on a, you know, I, I knew from the start I wanted it to end on the words no more because it's the obvious lead into the TV episode. So as I said earlier, it's kind of what is it that's going to push him to that point? And it's like, well, as readers, but also the character of the Doctor has to grow to to love Cinder, so that her death is meaningful and drives him. That helps, you know, everyone can understand why it's driven them to that point. And obviously, all of the stuff with the Time Lords and you know, trying to do what they're do, trying to do, and he wants to stop all of that. So there's a weight behind that kind of no more. But this is the personal bit. This is the bit. He, you know, for after all this time, he finally lets someone back in, and it hurts him. And, and it felt like that had to happen to, to drive him to the point where he goes, right, I'm now going to go and push this button. And of course, we did see her pop up in some expanded media as well. Yeah, little bits. Um, there was in the video game, we did um, for the mobile game with Tiny Rebel. Yeah, they you know we, they wanted us to, to bring Cinder back and we had this amazing art, fan art being done. We just thought, let's, let's do it. Let's put, let's put Cinder in the game. 
and proved pretty pop- popular for people to, to see her in that form. I'd love to do more with, with Cinder, but her story kind of starts and ends in that book. And I think I don't want to, to do too much to, you know, I know it's Doctor Who and you can kind of go, oh, well, maybe he can pop into a timeline and do something and save her and take her off in a different path. Like, I feel that might lessen the impact her death has on the story. And, you know, we were talking about canon earlier and how, like, Doctor Who doesn't really have a canon because everything's canon because t- wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, everything can happen. And I don't really know now where people view Engines of War 10 years on, where it sits when we've had all the, the War Doctor audios from Big Finish, you know, whether it still fits um, and whether people still see it as a, as a canon story. I, I don't know, really. Um, I haven't listened to all of the... I, I listened to the John Hurt episodes and loved them. I haven't listened to any, any of those yet. But... In my mind, you know, I think it's important that we feel Cinder's loss. So, so it was great to put her in that expanded media, but it, it's kind of it was a like little sideline game as opposed to let's go and tell our ongoing stories with this character. You could do prequel stuff where you know she's fighting the Daleks on Moldox. That would be cool, but I wouldn't want to spoil what we managed to capture in, in Engines of War. Yeah, ashes to ashes, Cinder to Cinders. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's part of the. Part of the thinking about a name, really, as well. So, yeah, and one thing's occurred to me that we I, I didn't mention when I was talking about the writing of the book, which people might be interested in, is that I dictated most of it. Um, oh. Just from a process point of view, because of time, because we were in such a, you know, this, you know six weeks to write it and, and still working. So I had an hour's drive to work every day and back. So I would dictate all the way there into a... Uh, I, I'd like a little MP3 recorder, hang it around my neck, I had some bullet points on a file card, which I would stick to my dashboard. And every time I was at the traffic lights, I could just go, where, where am I at? Okay. And then I would, I would dictate. Um, and it was really rough. It was a really rough version. But what it meant was when I later on, on a night, when I got home from doing a, a day's work, I had a couple of hours worth of dictation and it was like a really rough first draft. So what I could do when I, I was tired and, and these, I couldn't do that. You know, this is 10 years ago. I was a younger man. But what I could, what I was doing was putting the dictation on, and sitting at my keyboard and typing it up, but rewriting it as I was listening to it. So I was polishing it and getting a second draft as I wrote, as I wrote it up. And it was easier to do when I was tired to have that crutch of this, this first draft. That just became my process on the book. So even on my days off or weekends, I was going out in the car, finding somewhere to park up on a verge with a nice view, and I would sit for hours in the car dictating, and then come back and then typing up in chunks which really helped with the time pressure. Yeah, definitely. Whereas now you just run it through a bit of a voice recognition software and it would be... Yeah, <laughs> I tried. I tried to do that, but 10 years ago, it, it was garbling it. it you know, yeah. it, was, it was taking me more time. And also, because it was such a rough first draft, that I was making different word choices as I was rewriting or changing the sentence structures or, or whatever. So it meant it was. It probably would have been just as much or if not more work to have it on screen and have to change it as opposed to using it as a, as a tool to prompt me to write it up. But I haven't done that since. It was, it was very much kind of, I, I did it a few, I did it for a while on a few other projects while I was in that, kind of, when I was still working full-time. These days, I'm a full-time writer. But I haven't used it since um, as a method, but it really worked on that book. I think, and I also I think it helped with the immediacy of it all and the writing at a pace. I remember reading uh, in... Russell's book about the writing of Doctor Who. The Writer's Tale, that's the one. Yeah, I was just looking up on the bookshelf. Yeah, about listening to Live and Let Die and repeat and standing up when he was writing some of the action scenes for the Tenth Doctor. I think it's not quite the same, but it had it dictating it like that gave it some of that immediacy for me. And and the and the speed of having to write it quickly, you know, I don't like writing that quickly. I prefer to write, stop, rewrite. But actually I got in, got into a groove with this book that I think it flowed really, really well. Of course, when the book was released, so much acclaim for it. I just remembered so much love for it on Twitter. Gosh, people liking things on Twitter, imagine that. And uh, <laughs> and great reviews in DWM and other places and just seeing how much you'd taken that one-off character and really, in the War Doctor, and just really fleshed him out and had a fantastic tale for him. Yeah, it was, it was marvellous, the response, and quite humbling. And it hit the Sunday Times bestseller list. I don't, I don't know how many Doctor Who books over, over the years have hit the Sunday Times bestseller list, but it felt like an achievement. Yeah, I remember I'd gone away on holiday, you know, after this intense period of writing it, you know, finished it in, delivered it in April, then there was edits, May and June, July we went on holiday and it was published. It was, you know, it was that quick. 
And I remember being on holiday and running out to buy the Sunday paper to see if we'd made it onto the Sunday Times list. And there it was in hardback. And um, yeah, and you know, I still to this day, you know, have the Sunday Times best-selling author next to my name. And that's because of that book. Yeah, I, I was overwhelmed with the response to it. And I don't know, I, I don't know if it's still in print, to be honest. I, I, I haven't checked recently, but um, it seems to have some longevity. You know, people are still like, when I pop into a bookshop and sometimes I'll still see copies on the shelf in the in the Doctor Who section, which is, you know, is really gratifying to know that people are still buying it and reading it. Or, or if I'm at conventions, people often talk to me and say, oh, you're the guy who did the War Doctor book. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's the thing people remember. I've, I've you know, probably written 50 Doctor Who comics and tons of audios and um, several other Doctor Who books. But pe- what people remember is, is Indians of War. So I kind of feel like that was my my big contribution to Doctor Who. So far. So far. So far. Well, I haven't been, I mean, I haven't been asked to do anything for quite a long time these days, but one day perhaps. I'd, I'd originally talked to Albert about doing a sequel to Engines of War, actually, but we never quite got it over the line. We were going to do something with, I think we were going to, okay, if I remember now, we were going to do Eighth Doctor and Twelfth Doctor during the Time War and, and linking it to Engines of War. I've got, somewhere I've got loads of notes that I made. I wanted to do... I want to do a book called Master of War, but obviously that's massively been overtaken by all the other things that have happened in Doctor Who since, both in Big Finish and in the uh, the TV show with the Master. But I wanted to to show um, I wasn't I wasn't going to use Derek Jacobi as the War Master. I was going to have a have him resurrected from the Eye of Harmony, you know, after um, the Eighth Doctor moving, you know, dragged out as in a in a new form, and and then have him regenerate into Derek Jacobi. So yeah. A story of a book that never happened. Wow. Well, something that did happen, of course, was the audiobook version. That must have been a real joy to hear the Dalek voices in particular brought to life for you. Yeah, I was really chuffed when they asked Nick to do it because because it meant it's it's more than just an audiobook. It's you know it's and it's not it's not a fully acted play, but it's all the Dalek voices are there and and um and Nick does such a good variety of voices as well that it kind of feels like almost a full cast audio so yeah i mean that was brilliant i've still got it sat up here on my shelf on cd and um yeah it was brilliant to listen to i'm not very good at listening to my own stuff back i kind of for some reason like when i get an audiobook of something i tend to like find it a bit cringy to listen to and i always think about the things i'd do differently but with that i kind of i managed to kind of listen to it almost as a as a reader coming to it fresh hearing that performance hearing the daleks and, and that was ace Sunday Times bestseller George Mann. How do you look yeah. back on Engines of War now? Very fondly, very fondly indeed. I think up until I'm trying to think up until the Twelfth Doctor, I'd written every, I'd written for every Doctor, which was a nice feeling. But yeah, I do kind of look back and, and go now. If I never get to write Doctor Who again, I feel like I've done the thing that I, I you know, I've done something worthwhile. I've given back to a franchise that has given me so much pleasure over the years and, and so much joy. I feel like I've added something worthwhile other people enjoy. And, you know, who can ask for more than that as a writer? Fantastic, George. So where can people find out what you're up to at the moment on social media and the internet? So I'm on Instagram as at George Mann Author. Um, I have a website, georgeman.net. And on Twitter, you can find me at, at George underscore man. Um, that's usually where I'm posting kind of like what I've been up to most recently. A lot, a lot of Star Wars in recent years. I'm having a lot of fun writing Star Wars books uh, and audios. That's what's coming in the foreseeable future, but there's a few other little projects scattered in there as well. Fantastic. Well, as I'm now going to refer to you every time I speak to you, Sunday Times bestseller, George Mann, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been joy. And thank you to George for that. And Matt, have you ever heard of a book being written pretty much via dictaphone, first of all? I have not. I was trying to think. I, I don't think even Agatha Christie used to, even in her late, later days, used to make much use of dictaphones, no. No. Do you use a dictaphone? Because personally, I just use a finger. Matt's now giggling. A lot. I am. I am a dreadful human being. Anyway, let's have a quick head over to the pages of Doctor Who magazine for the review of this one. You didn't do it, 
this is because we've now run out of I Who reviews, because they haven't gone on to do new series stuff, we're now going to turn to the pages of Doctor Who magazine to find out what they thought for the rest of the books in this series. So we've got, uh, this is by Hywell Evans. Have you ever heard of Hywell Evans? Have you ever met them? No, I don't think so. No, maybe a pseudonym, who knows. Man captures John Hurt's portrayal of the Doctor beautifully, conveying the weariness and sadness that hasn't yet quite eclipsed the man he was before the war. He gets a companion in the form of Cinder, who represents the collateral damage of the Time War. The Doctor and Cinder aside, there's little humanity in the book, an absence that's somehow contrary to the spirit of Doctor Who. It seems that Engines of War is intended as a one-off, with no further stories planned for this incarnation of the Doctor. That's a pity. This novel is an undoubtedly impressive contribution to the mythology of the Time War, which, as we know, has underpinned Doctor Who since the show was revived. But it would be good to see the magnificent creation that is John Hurt's Doctor again in a rather less nihilistic outing. I think that's a very fair review. It is a bleak book interspersed with the occasional moments of Doctorish humour, but it's very much, I think, the setting and the whole tone of it and where things are going it doesn't really lend itself to the usual sort of lighter japes and comments that we would tend to get and expect. No, you know, the, the end of the universe in the genocidal war probably is fairly bleak, if I'm honest. Yeah, there's not too many fun ways to, to end the universe no. with, a, with a big war, but um, no, I don't think even Douglas Adams would try and pull that one off. But So there we go. But no, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, great read. And yeah, I think I'll be giving this another read in a few months' time because I might even take it on holiday with me because good read and there's so much in there that I'd forgotten. I mean, just some of the stuff like the like the temporal weapons Daleks and what the Predator was. I completely, I can't believe I'd forgotten what the Predator Dalek was. And yeah, it's, it's just such a big idea. I think, how could I have forgotten that? So yes, really enjoyed uh, coming back to it and revisiting it. Yeah, I think it's... Um... It's a brilliant one-off, and if you're only going to have one War Doctor book, this is definitely the this is definitely the right one because it's the one that leads into the Day of the Doctor and is the linchpin for his the decisions that he's already made at the beginning of that story. So this book gives you the the backstory of why he said no more and why he's taken the moment and why it's time to, to bring the whole mess to an end. Yeah, and I think it fits in nicely with Big Finish continuity, so you could very easily listen to the four Big Finish War Doctor box sets, read Engines of War, watch The Day of the Doctor, and then bingo, bango, bongo, there you go. That's the end of this incarnation covered quite nicely. Yeah, agree, 100%. Brilliant. Well, Matt, thank you once again for coming on Power of Three. It's been fun. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Good. And of course, I think you might have a question for me since we're now at the end. Yeah, so what is on the playlist for the end of the episode? Well, we all know that when it comes to conflict, we do have a question that goes with it because you think, why? I mean, you could effectively say war. What is it good for? And I would have to reply to that, absolutely nothing. So why don't we hear Edwin Starr telling us those very words. I would say that works. I agree. I thought you were going to go for give peace a chance. <laughs> nah, that's a bit too hippie tree huggy for me. No thanks. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. I'll be back tomorrow with Dave. I'll be resurrecting him like Rassilon, but I won't have him like a weird Barusa creature predicting the future. That would just be too much. I don't think his mum and sister would be approving of that. But uh, yes, we shall let you return to your time stream, Matt, and uh, we will catch up again very soon, I'm sure, over on PO8. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks very much, Kenny. And everybody, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, wow.